and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Stephanie Barclay, Associate Professor of Law at Brigham Young University J. Rubin Clark Law School. We will discuss her article, The Historical Origins of Judicial Religious Exemptions, which will be published in the Notre Dame Law Review. So welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me again, Brian. Yeah, no, the pleasure's all mine. This is a really interesting and and thoughtful paper. Uh, and, you know, on one level, it's about religious exemptions. But, you know, honestly, reading the paper, I felt like it kind of cut more broadly than that as well. But by way of situating the paper, I, I wonder if you could just kind of start by giving listeners a little bit of background into sort of what the state of the law from a constitutional perspective currently is in relation to uh, religious, judicial religious exemptions from statutes and sort of like how we got there. Absolutely. So for the court's modern case law dealing with religious exemptions, in the 1940s through the 1980s, the Supreme Court held that the First Amendment requires the judiciary to create exemptions from laws, including statutes, to protect religious conduct in certain cases. But then in Justice Scalia's famous 1990 opinion in Employment Division versus Smith, the court reversed its approach and said that if a law is neutral and generally applicable, then no religious exemption uh, from the judiciary is, is generally going to be required. But now the Supreme Court has just recently granted certiorari in a case where one of the questions presented asks the court to reconsider this approach that it's taking to religious exemptions under the First Amendment. And so the court may be poised to change its trajectory yet again. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this kind of historical background or the sort of reasoning behind Smith and, and how the court got there. Yeah. So there's been a lot written by a lot of really thoughtful scholars about when the First Amendment requires the judiciary to offer exemptions to protect religious conduct. And people mean different things when they talk about exemptions, but sort of in a broad sense, what I'm talking about is that the plain language of a statute could could be read to apply, but a court exempts that application or, or carves back that application when it's going to result in a burdensome sort of outcome uh, for a conscientious objector based on their religious beliefs. So some scholars have argued that the religious exemption is understood to include broad protections for religious conduct um, so that religious believers can act consistent with those religious beliefs, even when, and sometimes those that religious conduct will incidentally butt up against generally applicable laws. Michael McConnell is one of the scholars who has made this historical argument. Others have argued that the free exercise clause uh, should be understood more narrowly. Philip Hamburger is on this side of the camp, and he has argued that really the free exercise clause was only meant to include freedom from overt sorts of religious targeting by the government, but not this broader exemption from generally applicable laws. Uh, there's been other scholars that have weighed in as well in, in this discussion that's been both interesting and important. But one assumption that has been shared by both sides is that it would have been a significant change in the law and judicial practice for the courts to create exemptions from statutes to protect certain types of conduct. You know, they're disagreeing on whether or not this change happened, but they seem to agree that it would have been a significant change if it happened. And in my article, I'm challenging that particular conventional wisdom, and I'm seeking to bring to light an important consideration that's been overlooked about 
the practices of the judiciary more broadly when it comes to providing exemptions from statutes to protect all sorts of rights, not just religious rights. Mm. Well, so I, I, I'm really looking forward to getting into the material that you looked at in the paper. But before we do that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the sort of scholars who've developed the kind of differing strands or competing strands of arguments on the sort of conventional wisdom in this area. Like, what did they rely on? What kind of historical evidence did they look to, to argue for or against the availability of exemptions? Sure. So, one of the things that Professor McConnell is pointing to is I mean, he's pointing to writings by James Madison and the Memorial of Remonstrance, and he's also pointing to lots of exemptions that we know were provided uh, historically for religious objectors. So he points to, for example, the Quakers who had religious objections to military service. And so when they when they said, we, we just can't fight in the military, we can't fight in a war because of our religious beliefs, originally, sometimes our, our nation in different states would just draft them anyway. And then if they didn't fulfill their duties, sometimes we would throw them in jail or worse. And, um, and there was actually an interesting historical discussion where some people commented about how this doesn't really seem to be helping. We're, we're increasing the suffering for the Quakers, but we're not actually accomplishing our goal of getting more people fighting in the military. So, so why are we doing this? And that's when uh, some legislatures began to offer exemptions to allow these Quakers to have different options so that they could opt out of military service. And one of the things that Professor Hamburger has pointed out too is, sure, we have legislative exemptions, but we don't have tons of examples of judicial exemptions. There are a few early cases, and I'll, I'll talk about them when we get into that, but, but he's saying, um, and Jerry Bradley as well from Notre Dame are saying, if, if there was a right of judicial exemptions, wouldn't we expect to see a lot of court cases granting this right, especially if, if this is a big sea change in the law, then you'd need to show a lot of those sorts of cases in order to prove that this big change in judicial practice had happened. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about those those early cases, like to the extent there is any evidence of judicial exemptions, what does it look like? And what, if anything, do the actual existing exemptions we know about tell us about how people thought constitutionally about uh, judicial exemptions in in the early republic? Sure. So I'll talk about two cases uh, where we have a pretty robust record of the court's reasoning, in part because in one of them, the lawyer just sort of took a transcript of the cases. And, and normally a lot of those early records of, of court cases are lost or, or recorded pretty sporadically, which is part of the reason why you can't draw a ton of conclusions one way or the other from our uh, modern data set of this evidence because we don't have a complete sample. But anyway, in one of these early cases, this was decided in 1813. It's People versus Phillips. And this is the first case where we know that the religious objector was expressly asking for a religious exemption. Uh, so we know that that issue was squarely before the court. And here the court granted it. So our first case on the books is granting a religious exemption. And what we have is a Catholic priest who in New York had been subpoenaed as part of a judicial proceeding. And he was, uh, the court was trying to force him to, or I should say the government officials were trying to force him to testify about a confession the priest had received about stolen jewelry. And so there were no exemptions to that subpoena requirement 
for priest confessionals at the time. And the question was, should we grant a religious exemption here for this priest? And, and the court ultimately ruled, yes, we should. And later in an 1855 case called Commonwealth v. Cronin in Virginia, the court arrived at a similar result there. Now, there were two other states that um, didn't provide religious exemptions in Pennsylvania and South Carolina. Um, however, even though we have these appellate decisions rejecting religious exemptions, there was some evidence in both states of de facto religious exemptions that were being allowed by trial judges and in, in their discretion. And so, you know, a question arises, well, why were they doing that or how were they doing that? Which was part of what prompted me to look into this issue as well. So, so my understanding of this sort of conventional position then is that it's essentially like, or, or at least the argument that kind of is buttressing the employment division v. Smith position is essentially that, look, to the extent there was any evidence cutting in favor of judicial exemptions, there's as much evidence cutting against it. And therefore, as a historical matter, there isn't really a strong sort of set of evidence supporting the idea that this was constitutionally required. Is it that sort of a fair assessment of sort of what the conventional wisdom in the area would be? I think that is a fair summary of, of one of the arguments that the evidence is sort of mixed and, and we don't have a lot of support for religious exemptions. The other evidence, though, that I, I would add to that conventional wisdom is, you know, arguments were made that, well, even the early religious exemption cases granting exemptions weren't dealing with statutes and statutes are different. And maybe those examples that Professor McConnell pointed to about religious exemptions for things like taking oaths or the Quakers in the military just show that the role of providing religious protection was really meant for the legislature and not the judiciary. That's just not within the judicial role that was understood at the time. So those are some of the additional arguments that I think fall within that sort of conventional wisdom and that Justice Scalia later pointed to in his concurrence in City of Bernie, where he sort of provided additional historical support for the position he had earlier taken in Employment Division versus Smith. Well, so if I understand your paper correctly, at sort of a macro level, you're sort of suggesting that in some ways this is almost like an ahistorical way of looking at how people understood the nature of statutory enforcement, statutory interpretation, and judicial exemptions during the relevant period of time. Is that fair? Yeah. At a macro level, I'm trying to step back and say judicial practices about religious protections are really just one chapter in this larger story of the story of judicial review and how the judiciary was protecting different sorts of constitutional rights generally. And so having that context in mind is important. And I think some of the claims that are being made um, by opponents of religious exemptions are ahistorical claims about the broader practices of the judiciary across the board during this time period. Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, like, because I thought this was really fascinating. Like, you know, what do you think is the right way to understand how judges thought about the relationship between courts and legislatures during this time period, and specifically how judges thought about statutory interpretation in relation to individual rights and specifically in relation to constitutional values? It was really interesting for me to dive into that question. One thing you see both 
treatise writers and and judges and opinions talking about is the way in which the common law was sort of uh, you know the major source of the broad generally applicable rules at the time and statutes uh, weren't as voluminous at the time and weren't weren't serving that sort of role right away and in some ways statutes were more of a modification of or you know a small adjustment to the common law than the other way around and so when when judges did create exemptions for things, uh, often the legislature would later follow and, and codify what the judges did. Um, but sometimes also the judges would look at what legislatures and other places were doing as evidence of the sorts of common law rules that they should develop. Um, and all of this was happening in part under a doctrine called the equity of the statute, which um, may actually have been first articulated by Aristotle. And he spoke about how when uh, you know laws being general in nature are are therefore going to be imperfect, then judges can uh, they can't rightly decide the infinite variety of particular cases just just by looking at that law alone. And sometimes the exception to a rule will occur that is then admitted into equity. Blackstone later reinforces this sort of rule, and and what is often happening with courts. Um, one of the ways they're doing it is through a rule called the mischief rule, which I'll talk about more in a minute. But they, they are reading the text of the statutes and they are engaging in an objective review of those statutes. But they're also, in order to protect a whole host of different types of individual rights, are sometimes reading exemptions into those statutes where the application they think just doesn't seem to really make sense with the broader legal context. Well, so what would that look like in practice? Like, Maybe you could give an example of how a court during the relevant time period would have thought about the equity of the statute and or the the mischief rule that you're talking about. Like, What did that mean? And how, how in practice would courts kind of cash out this idea of sort of taking a general rule and thinking about how to apply it in particular circumstances? Yeah, so one great example is provided by Blackstone with his famous surgeon example. And to provide a little bit of context about this mischief rule, what, what courts would often do during this time period is they would try and identify what was sort of the historical or objective problem that the legislature was trying to solve. And would this particular application of the statute actually advance solving that problem or not? And, and one thing I argue in my paper is this is not unlike in some ways the analysis that now takes place under heightened scrutiny, where we're asking, would this application of the law actually advance the government's interest or not? And so the example Blackstone provides is, um, he says, let's say there's a law that said, whoever draws blood in the streets should be punished with utmost severity. Sounds like a sensible uh, rule if we're trying to prevent people from causing bloodshed in the streets. But then Blackstone asks, could this law be used to punish a surgeon who opened the vein of a person that fell down in the street with a fit? And as we know back then, opening the vein was thought of as medical treatment, although that would be suspect treatment today for a fit. But anyway, um, so he's saying if a surgeon is trying to help this person and draws blood in the street, would we really punish them under the law? And, and he says, no, the law couldn't be applied in this way, uh, basically because that application of the law would do nothing to solve the mischief of violent bloodshed. We wouldn't really be advancing the government's interest there. And interestingly, that is a very similar sort of analysis that the court in the Phillips case and the Cronin case is engaging in when the court decides 
you know, applying this particular subpoena law to a religious objector here isn't really going to help government accomplish its goals. And I can talk more about that if you want. Sure. Yeah. I mean, from a kind of law professor or maybe law student perspective, it really has echoes of the sort of uh, no vehicles in the park sort of hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, there's a great article I'd recommend by Sam Bray, where he talks about the mischief rule as well in the context of statutory interpretation and talks about how that historical statutory interpretation technique that was used uh, brings a new tool for how to deal with the vehicles in the park sort of problem. I mean, how do you think this perspective on the concept of the equity of the statute and the mischief rule ought to affect how we think about sort of what it meant for courts to engage in constitutional reasoning and thinking about the sort of application of statutes in a constitutional sense during the relevant period of time. I mean, is there a way of analogizing that or to, to kind of contemporary practice or putting kind of historical practice into terms that we would sort of track current sort of constitutional kind of analytic frameworks? Yes, I think this analysis does provide some interesting historical antecedents for some different modern constitutional practices. And I'll talk about both broadly and then also maybe more specifically in the in the context of the debate going on about religious exemptions. So more broadly, uh, one thing that I think these early equitable exemptions serves as a historical analog for is modern as applied challenges. And as I'm sure you and many listeners are familiar with, the, the court has basically two different types of constitutional challenges someone can bring. They can challenge a law facially, which essentially means that this law has some defect that means that the, the text of the statute shouldn't be applied to anyone, basically. Or they can say this, this law as written is generally fine, but this particular application to this particular context is problematic. And the as-applied constitutional challenge has been described by the Supreme Court as the basic building block of constitutional adjudication. And, and sort of ironically, Justice Scalia was actually a fan of that default of the preference in favor of as-applied challenges as opposed to um, facial challenges. And so one thing that I have noted both here, but also in previous scholarships, is that when you view religious exemptions as just one of many types of as-applied challenges, it makes them seem less like special treatment we only give to religious people and more of one of a kind of this different types of constitutional practice that applies in lots of contexts. Then as, a, as related to the more specific debate that is going on about the historical evidence for religious exemptions, I think this broader historical perspective undercuts some of the arguments made by scholars and, and Justice Scalia in Employment Division versus Smith for a few reasons. First, it shows that Judicial exemptions would not have been a constitutional anomaly at the time period. They, they were quite common in lots of different contexts. Um, in property contexts is one of the spots they popped up a lot, too. Um, there's not something about generally applicable laws that entitles them to immunity from judicial scrutiny. And in fact, sometimes broadly written generally applicable laws were ones that the judges said you know, like the surgeon law, this doesn't seem to be actually helpful in this particular application. It doesn't seem like the legislature actually thought about this poor fit for this application. And so we're going to carve that out and create an exemption here. Um, and finally, interestingly, Justice Scalia thought that these sorts of exemptions 
would result in us courting anarchy. But at least historically, judges spoke a lot about when they were doing this thing where they were engaging in equity or um, really sort of bending the statutory language to avoid unconstitutional outcomes. They were doing that to be respectful of the legislature and the rule of law, leave as much law intact as possible while still provide constitutional protection for important rights. Um, I think there's other implications for the relevance here for strict scrutiny that I've mentioned before. We can talk about that more if you want, but those are some of the reasons why I think this history is really interesting and has a lot to still teach us today. Mm. Well, and one thing I kind of took away from the article was that in a lot of respects, it's almost like kind of a dog that didn't bark type scenario yeah. Yeah. where it's like, where should the burden of proof be? You know, should, a, should the burden of proof be on the people who are arguing that allowing for exemptions in religious exemptions in particular to statutes was permitted to show that it actually kind of was articulated in explicit terms by judges? Or should the burden be on people arguing the opposite to show that, in fact, legislatures and courts were not considering religious objections and kind of overruling or denying any kind of religious exemptions to show that it wasn't an, you know, an exception. Brian, you're so much better at summarizing my paper than I am. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, but yeah, that's, that's a great summary as far as, um, you know, this argument that has been made that these early religious exemption cases, like the, the people case, uh, people v. Phillips and the Cronin case, those were just aberrations. And if this was really a, you know, an understood practice, we'd need much more evidence, especially because, the judiciary just didn't engage in providing exemptions. That would have been a new thing. And if, if that was true historically across the board, then I think that's right. We we would want to look for a lot more evidence of this brand new thing judges started doing just for, to protect religion, and that is creating exemptions. But if, in fact, um, as, as I argue, the judges are engaging in the, the process of creating exemptions all the time, they've been doing this uh, since well before Blackstone, but certainly they were doing it quite a lot around the Blackstone era. And it was something common that early American jurists um, and judges were familiar with in the early Republic. And if the early religious exemption cases seem to fit nicely within that broader pattern, then they no longer look like an aberration. And we no longer are trying to justify a sea change in the law. We're fitting this religious protection practice within a much broader framework of the way in which judges were just operating generally to protect lots of different types of rights and legal interests. Mm. Well, so, I mean, if you can, like, could you talk a little bit about how the perspective you're bringing on historical practice might or should perhaps affect sort of how we think about this problem in a contemporary context? In other words, does it mean that Employment Division v. Smith is just 100% wrong, or are there ways of kind of modifying the position the court took in that case that might better reflect the sort of realities of historical practice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So this article doesn't, like the thesis of this article is not that Smith was wrong in every, everything it said. Um, there's a lot of different things going on in Smith. And the fact that Smith relies on assumptions without basis in history admittedly doesn't go the full distance of establishing that religious exemptions 
are required by the First Amendment. Um, and so a full treatment of all the historical evidence is beyond the scope of this particular article. And as we've talked about, scholars like uh, Michael McConnell and Philip Hamburger have done a great job diving into that. But I do think that understanding this broader role of equitable exemptions and how that played a role in, in what the judiciary did to protect rights, this provides additional historical support for a modern religious exemption framework um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you're sort of like weighing the historical evidence, you now have to take off the scale, I think, some of the arguments where people are saying, well, religious exemptions couldn't have been justified historically because courts just didn't do that sort of thing. It would have been an aberration, uh, and we didn't expect them to do anything like this sort of strict scrutiny analysis to protect rights, and it would have been a sea change in the law that we're not seeing. So those arguments that, that have been relied on, including by Justice Scalia, I think you have to take off the scale as far as if you're weighing the evidence. And then on the other side, the way in which the mischief rule operates is an important historical antecedent for aspects of modern strict scrutiny analysis for the way that a court looks at what was the government interest and would applying this law to a religious objector actually advance that interest. Um, I think that is evidence on the side of the scale that, that supports a framework that requires at least some sort of heightened judicial scrutiny, checking to see does the government really have a good reason here to trample religious rights? Um, and if and if not, and if it doesn't actually help advance the government's interests, then, then maybe we're not going to apply the law in this way and just needlessly increase human suffering and burden religious believers. Hmm. Well, so one thing I was wondering about while reading your paper was sort of what courts should practically do with some of the observations that you're making. I mean, can judges use the kinds of interpretive principles that you're sort of identifying in these admittedly very old opinions? Or do they have to sort of put them in modern terms and more think about how they might inflect the way that we understand um, sort of current modes of statutory interpretation kind of through a historical lens? Yeah. So there's, two, I think, two answers to that question. Number one is, uh, as far as just the functional result that happened in some of these cases, uh, historically, it, again, it's not unlike the functional result that happens in modern jurisprudence in the constitutional as applied challenge context. And one thing that the the modern Supreme Court has been interested in is trying to root more of its doctrine in history. And so a question that the court seems to be asking in lots of different contexts, not just the religious one, is, you know, we've been engaging in this judicial practice since the 60s or the 70s or whatever. Uh, is this right? Should we continue to do this? Is there a historical grounding for what we're doing? So this at least provides more food for thought for, for that particular question. Um, as far as should we use the exact same types of modes of analysis courts were engaging in then? You know, Professor John Manning has some interesting analysis about this, where he talked about some aspects of equitable interpretation seem to have maybe rightly fallen out of the judicial practice as we, as, as the judges really grew into their role in our constitutional system of separation of powers. And so one, one change, for example, that has happened that many might view as a good change is that when judges were providing equitable exemptions, sometimes they were basing it 
more on constitutional limitations, but sometimes they were just basing it more on their notions of justice or fairness and natural law. And the first ones uh, have more legitimacy likely as a positive law matter today than the, the ones based more on a judge's notion of fairness and nat natural law. And so that's one aspect of the analysis that um, has sort of sharpened and pieces of it have fallen out over time. And similarly, judges used to rely more on the fiction of legislators' intent, the intent that they wouldn't have wanted to violate the Constitution. And so courts just wouldn't have applied the law in that way. Um, and there's some similarities between that and modern constitutional avoidance. There are some differences, to be sure. And, and some scholars have argued maybe it's just better when courts are more candid about what they're doing rather than engaging in mental gymnastics. So there's definitely some interesting debate there about the way in which we should go about doing this. But if we're looking, for, you know, particularly in the religious exemption context, and if that's an area where the court is trying to see, is there historical grounding for scrutinizing what the government is doing to see if it's actually advancing interests to burden religious individuals? Is there historical grounding for the judiciary to have a role to carve back the plain application of statutes to protect religious individuals? I think the answer to those questions is yes. And that's one contribution this article makes. Mm. Well, I, I, I kind of wonder like what it means from a practical perspective. I mean, I almost got the sense that maybe it sort of suggests that on some level, the sort of RIFRA approach to religious exemptions is closer to historical practice than the Smith approach. Is that is that right or am I missing something? I think that the aspect of RIFRA that is looking closely at uh, would this application of the law actually advance the government's interest or not? Um, and if not, then we're going to grant an exemption. That aspect of RIFRA does seem to be closer, I think, to a historical approach than, than the modern approach under Smith, where you, we would just say, well, if the law is neutral and generally applicable, it doesn't actually matter if this application will help the government or not, or if it's really going to burden the religious individual or not. We just, the court has nothing to say about that because it's, because it's a generally applicable law. There are other questions about RIFRA that, uh, like the substantial burden and analysis, for example, that triggers RIFRA that I think merit a whole separate article to delve into whether or not that's historically justified. And that, that may be a future project I work on. So, Stephanie, in closing, um, I wanted to kind of take a step back from the kind of specific focus of your paper on religious exemptions, because it struck me that a lot of the historical observations that you made in the paper sort of apply more broadly to the way that we think or the way that we might think historically about the way that courts did and thought about what they were doing when they did constitutional adjudication. And I, I wonder if you could kind of reflect more broadly on sort of what implications or we might take away from the observations that you're making about constitutional adjudication in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Now, this was really fascinating for me because I, I definitely learned a lot more about the judicial practice generally. So, one thing, I mentioned this a little bit before, but just the fact that judicial opinions were so rarely published during the founding period. And so 
you know, there's a lot that we just don't know. And so we have to be a little bit more modest about claims we're making um, in light of that. There's also this really low volume of judicial decisions about constitutional issues in the founding period compared to the modern caseload that we have. Um, ironically, even though, you know, the, the volume of judicial decisions just as a, a you know, a number in and of itself compared to modern ones is low. If you if you turn it into a fraction where we have judicial decisions in the numerator and um, and like pages in the statutes at large, for example, in the denominator, and so you're thinking about the judiciary's review of things like statutes or laws, then by that metric, according to Keith Whittington in his recent book *Repugnant Laws*, um, our our modern judiciary is actually much less activist than, than the founding era one, just just based on that ratio, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Um, and, you know, knowing that the volume of statutes passed by legislatures was much lower then and that they, the statutes served different, more private roles originally, uh, I think was interesting. That's different than we, how we think about a lot of statutes now. Um, and, you know, Farrah Peterson at, at Virginia has done a lot of interesting work about this. Um, so when we're thinking about the role of the judiciary, you know, one thing that a lot of that says to me is that we have to ca be cautious about saying, oh, we're not finding a bunch of evidence of the judiciary doing this thing now um, back then. And therefore, you know, there's there's no justification for that. It needs to be a, a much more nuanced look at judicial practices than that. Um, and also just, uh, you know, how fascinating it is to see these early courts really charting a new role as figuring out what does it mean to actually enforce and give real life to the commitments in the world's first, you know, in many respects, major written constitution, where we are giving meaning to this writing that is a has force and positive law above statutes and that judiciary, uh, the judiciary is serving as sort of the referee of those conflicts. All of that, seeing how those early courts are navigating and growing into that role in light of a lot of those historical differences from what the modern landscape looks like now, uh, I think are really interesting and should give us maybe a little bit more, more caution as we're trying to just transpose modern adjudication things that we do now into that very different time period. Mm. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the program for a second time. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I really enjoyed reading this paper. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate you having me on.
I'm made to bow my head in shame At some evil thought or deed along life's way But I never am ashamed Of the Savior's blessed name I just feel away somewhere and pray I just feel away I just feel away and pray And I ask the blessed Lord to lead the way Here's an answer's prayers And he gives me many blessings every day When I fail to do my best And I fail to pass the test I just steal away somewhere and pray I just steal away somewhere and pray 